0: Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Director of Missions Mobilization, Dave Hardin. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. This morning, um, as Dennis said, Pastor Joe and his wife Kathy are on a well-deserved vacation. And we will be continuing in our study of the book of Nehemiah. I'm glad to be gathered here with my River Bluff family, both here in person and for those who are watching at home. And um, all the songs there, we're talking about the work that God has done through Jesus, and then our response of love and affection and devotion to Jesus. And, and that's actually what we're going to be talking about today as we continue um, in Nehemiah chapter 5. If, if you recall... Last week, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 4, and in that uh, chapter, we see that Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem are working in building, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and they're facing this opposition from the outside. But they, with God's help, they overcome that opposition, and now, this morning, we're going to see a little bit different scenario as we look at Nehemiah chapter 4. Five, we're going to see the injustice and oppression that comes from within and amongst their own people. But this is a good time for us to stop and be reminded that the book of Nehemiah actually comes within a greater context, the context of all of Scripture. And the story of the Bible is, can be um, rightly said in four different themes, the theme of creation, The theme of fall, redemption, and then finally consummation. And that story is the story of God creating all things as good. Then as that story continues, mankind rebels against God. And corruption enters into the world. God promises to put things right through this Redeemer to come, through the seed of the woman, Who is Jesus Christ and then God says one day I will make everything right once again through the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ and so as we take a look at chapter Nehemiah chapter 5 and as we find it within that greater context that that big story of the Bible we see in this story that it's the work that God is doing through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is the hero of the Bible Can I get an amen? And so my hope and desire for us this morning is that as we go through Nehemiah chapter 5, that we too will see Jesus Christ as the hero of this story. And one of the ways that we can do that is by taking a look at the life and ministry of Nehemiah, and we see Nehemiah... In the Bible, as a picture and as a sign pointing forward to Christ. And we can see that in several different ways as we go through the book of Nehemiah. Um, One of the first ways that we see that, we see that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is the one who sits at the right hand of the king. And as the wine is presented, Nehemiah tastes that as the one who the king trusts. Nehemiah is there to protect the king. And so we see then Nehemiah as a cupbearer to the king as a picture and a sign pointing forward to Jesus who is the cupbearer to the king of all the cosmos. In several ways that we see that in the New Testament, uh, we see on the night before Jesus was crucified, he's gathered in the upper room with his disciples, sharing a meal with them. And as they're sharing that meal, Jesus says, take this bread. This bread represents my body that will be given for you. And then Jesus takes the cup, the cup of wine, and he passes around and says, take this cup and drink of it. This signifies the new covenant, the spilling of my blood for you in this new covenant that God is making between himself and man through The death of Jesus. And so we see Jesus as the cupbearer there. And then later on that same night, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's praying to his Father, knowing what will soon come, knowing that he will soon be crucified on the cross. And he takes, as he's praying to the Father, he says, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And that cup that he's talking about there as he's praying to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane is the cup of God's wrath that he knows he will soon experience. Just a further picture of Jesus as the cupbearer to the king. Later on, towards the end of the story, the book of Revelation, we find Jesus once again as a picture of the cupbearer to the king. And in Revelation chapter 14, we see that God says that through the lamb who was slain, he will pour out his judgment as the wine of God's wrath from the cup of his anger on all who believe. It is that lamb who was slain that bears that cup that will bring judgment, the wrath of God on all who do not believe in the work that he's done through Jesus. And so, just a further picture of Jesus as the cupbearer to the king of the cosmos. Now, throughout the book of Nehemiah, we, see, we get several other pictures of Jesus uh, as, as Nehemiah as a type of Jesus, as the one who's pointing forward as a sign to Jesus. We see Nehemiah, who is sent by the king of Assyria to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem to carry out the work that the king assigned for him to do. And we see Jesus as the one who is set by the king to do his work as well, to bring redemption to the world, to build his kingdom. Another picture that we get of Nehemiah as a type of Jesus, we see Nehemiah when he first hears of the condition of Jerusalem. He's still in Babylon at this time, but he hears of the condition of Jerusalem, And it says he weeps over the condition of Jerusalem. We see Jesus, in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, looking out over Jerusalem. And he too weeps, not only over the condition of the city, but over the condition of God's people there in Jerusalem. We see that Nehemiah, And his co-workers, as they're going through the process of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they're mocked and despised. We got a great picture of that last week in Nehemiah chapter 4. Moving forward, we see Jesus and his disciples as they're carrying out the work of God. We see them too, mocked and despised. Nehemiah, if we were to go further on in the story, we would see that when the wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt, Nehemiah returns to the king of Assyria only to come back to Jerusalem again. And there, too, we see Jesus, sent by the king to redeem and build his kingdom, goes back to the king only to return again, this time with the new Jerusalem, the people of God. And so, in many different ways, we can see Nehemiah as a type of Jesus, as a sign pointing forward to Jesus. As we look at the life and ministry of Nehemiah, it becomes clear that he's pointing forward to Jesus. And so, my hope for us this morning, as we take a look at Nehemiah chapter 5, is that we will see Jesus in this chapter. And as we said, that Jesus is the hero of all the Bible. My hope for us is that we will see Jesus as the very hero of Nehemiah chapter five. So let's go ahead and take a look at Nehemiah. I want to read um, from chapter five, the first eight verses. So if you would turn with me there, please, beginning in verse one. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields in our vineyards, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields in our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry. In these words, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. And so we see a scenario here, as it says in the very first verse, that the people of Jerusalem have this great outcry against these nobles and officials of Jerusalem, their very own people from amongst their very own people, who are charging them interest on the money that they're loaning to the people of Jerusalem. And we see that in this scenario that many have left their fields, they've left their vineyards, they've left their houses to come and help with that work of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. We see also that there's a great famine going on in the land. And so the people can't rely on the crops from their fields and their vineyards to help sustain them and to help pay for the taxes. It also says that the king is charging taxes on all these people and they've run out of money. They have nothing to offer so they're borrowing money from the nobles and officials and the nobles and officials are charging them this high interest on this money that they've borrowed from them. We see also that it's come to the point for some where they've had to give up their very own children as slaves. This was a common practice back at that time, that if you could not keep up with things financially, you would give your child or your children as slaves for a period of time until you could then repay that money. And so we see this injustice and this oppression that's being brought upon the people of Israel from amongst their own people, the the nobles and officials, and we see that Nehemiah says, "This is not right. How can this be?" Well, one reason that this is not right is is certainly that it's unethical, but also we see in the book of Leviticus in chapter twenty five. That God says through the Mosaic law that they should not be doing this. So turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 25. And I want to take a look at verses 35 through 43. Leviticus 25, starting in verse 35, says, If your brother becomes poor... And cannot maintain himself with you. This is exactly what was going on there in Jerusalem. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. And he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit. But fear your God. That your brothers may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest. Nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. So we see here very clearly in the book of Leviticus that God, through the Mosaic Law, says that you should never do this to your own brothers and sisters who have fallen into poverty. And that's exactly the very thing that we see happening here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5. I want to go a little bit further, the next couple of verses here in Nehemiah 5, verses 9 through 11. Says, so I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields their vineyards, their olive orchards, in their houses, in their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And so what we see here as we go a little bit further in Nehemiah is that the root of this problem that the people of Jerusalem are experiencing is a spiritual problem. And it's a lack of the fear of God on the part of the nobles and officials. They don't fear God, and therefore, they feel perfectly fine to charge interest. They feel perfectly fine to see sons and daughters enslaved, people losing their vineyards, people losing their fields, people losing their houses, just trying to survive because they don't have enough to eat. But on the part of the nobles and officials, They don't fear God. Now, I want to give us a little bit of a definition and a description of what it means to fear God, because when we hear that word fear, we think that we're afraid, and that is part of what the fear of God means. It it does mean to be afraid of God, but as we'll see, it means to be afraid of God, having a reverence and an awe and a respect of God. And I want us to turn now to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and take a look at some verses that will help us understand what it means to fear God. So Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to begin by looking at verses 12 and 13. And here Moses is talking to the people of Israel just before they go into the promised land. They've been brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, this is just before they go into the promised land. And Moses is reminding them of the Mosaic law that was given there at Mount Sinai. In verses 12 and 13 say, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. And so we see here uh, a display and a definition of the fear of God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his commandments this is part of what it means and part of what it looks like to fear God and this is exactly the thing that the nobles and officials there in Nehemiah's day were not doing to give further definition and description to what it means to fear God let's uh, go down a little bit further in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and I want to read verses 20 through 22 You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. So here we have a further description of what it means to fear God. And Moses is telling us here, God tells us through Moses, that we're to praise God. That's part of what it looks like to fear him. To praise him for the good things that he had done. The people of Israel, it said, had started out as 70 people being brought into Egypt. And now we find them At the edge of the promised land and there are as many as the stars of heaven God has freed them from slavery in Egypt God has brought them through the wilderness and God is bringing them now into the promised land and so they're to look back in fear of God praising him for says the good and terrifying things that he's done That's part of what it means to fear God. And so we can get from all this that we're to have this respect, to have this awe, this reverence of God, the almighty, all-powerful God. And out of that, we're to praise Him for the good and great things He's done in and through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ hadn't come on the scene yet in... The book of Nehemiah as a human being. Certainly he was there, but he wasn't there as the human that we know as Jesus. But we see the nobles and officials there in Jerusalem that don't have a fear of God. They don't have a respect for God. They don't have an awe and a reverence for God. They have forgotten the good and mighty things that God had done for them. And therefore, they are bringing injustice on their Jewish brothers and sisters. This great oppression and injustice. And let's take a look and see how Nehemiah deals with this. Nehemiah is the governor of Judah at this point. And so he is the one responsible for now dealing with this great injustice that's happening from amongst God's people. And so let's uh, go a little bit further here in Nehemiah and... um, Let's take a look at verses 12 and 13. Nehemiah 5, verse 12. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priest and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And so we see Nehemiah now, the one who's responsible for dealing with this injustice, calling for the nobles and officials to put things right, to give back all that they had taken from the people of Judah, from Jerusalem. And the response of the nobles and officials is that they do repent. They do turn from their ways and turn to the way that Nehemiah has called them, the way that God first told them to live their lives. And they do give back the fields, the orchards, the houses. They set free the children they had enslaved. They give back the money that they had gotten from the charging of interest. What what a great and victorious time this is as Nehemiah has dealt with this injustice But the book of Nehemiah doesn't stop here. If we were to go to the very end of that same story, we'll see that Nehemiah, even though he has dealt with the injustice here, even though he's gained a victory and brought justice to the people of Jerusalem, the end of the story is kind of sad because it says these very same people fell back into their wicked and evil ways. Nehemiah returns and he's angry, and it says he even slapped some of them because of the way they're acting. Nehemiah, although he brought justice to the people of Jerusalem at this time, did not bring back a permanent and perfect justice to the people of Jerusalem. But think about Jesus Christ. In his day, he also had to deal with injustice from amongst God's people. The injustice, primarily from the Jewish religious leaders in that day, who were dealing with the people and bringing a great burden on them and dealing in unjustly with them. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. And we'll see what uh, the Apostle Matthew has to say about this. Matthew twenty three, twenty three says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others and so jesus himself has to deal with this great injustice that's taking place from amongst god's people against god's people and we see here it's the scribes and the pharisees the religious leaders of that day who are bringing as i said this heavy burden upon the people and they're not dealing justly with them But unlike Nehemiah, Jesus deals with this injustice in a whole different way. You see, Jesus deals with this injustice by stepping into this injustice and experiencing the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. By being unfairly arrested, unjustly tried and crucified on the cross, Jesus steps into this injustice, experiences it through his death on the cross. And as we see Jesus experiencing this great injustice, we see at the same time God dealing justice in and through the crucifixion of Jesus, in his burial, in his resurrection. Because you see the greatest injustice in the world Is the injustice of sin. We see the very first man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebel against God. Even though God had good things for them in this great, good and great place for them, they turn from God. That's the greatest injustice. Next to the injustice that happened to Jesus Christ at the cross. And so God says, I am a just God. Justice has to be served. Just as Jeremy was just sitting here, and, and he is one who's helping bring justice through um, being a police officer, and we thank him for that. God says, in response to the injustice of Adam and Eve as they turn away from him, in rebellion, in sin, God says, "I'm a just God, I'm a righteous God, I'm a holy God. Justice must be served." And therefore, you shall die. Talking about their physical death, but also talking about their spiritual death. That one day, they would be separated from God for all of eternity. One day, they would be in this place that the Bible describes as a place of torment and pain, day and night, forever and ever. Separated from their creator God who loved them. And so we see that the justice of God demands death. So Jesus, as he experiences this incredible injustice from amongst the people of God, this arrest, this bogus trial, being nailed to the cross, as we see that injustice happening, at the same time we see God dealing out his justice on Jesus Christ. Jesus dies in the place of all those who rebel against God, which would be us. Because you see, the Bible makes it clear that we've all rebelled against God. We've all turned from God. We've all sinned against God. We all deserve that death that Jesus died on the cross. And so we see Jesus dealing with this injustice in a different way than Nehemiah dealt with it. We see Nehemiah in his ministry merely as a picture pointing forward to Jesus dealing with this injustice. And we see with the injustice of God's people, the justice of God taking place at the same time. And to give us a a little bit better picture of that, I want to turn to Isaiah 53. It won't come up on the screen, But if you want to follow along with me, we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 9. This is going to give us a picture of that injustice that Jesus was experiencing. And at the same time, the justice of God that's being served. Isaiah 53 Verse 3, he, talking about Jesus Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Here's the justice of God coming in. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so what an incredible picture of all that's going on spiritually here in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 5 as we see Nehemiah as a picture as a sign pointing forward to Jesus, as we see how Jesus deals with this great injustice from amongst God's people, and as we see God dealing out justice, the justice that we all deserve on His one and only Son. But God doesn't stop there. He says that one day, one day He will deal with all the injustice in the world. And he will put everything right. There will be no more injustice. And he will do that through this very man, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman that he promised. And we get a good picture of that just a few chapters back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42. So turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 42. I want to take a look at verses 1 through 4. Isaiah 42, starting with verse 1. Behold my servant whom whom I uphold, talking about Jesus Christ. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed, he will not break. In a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, in the coastlands, wait for his law. So you see here, through the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus is born as a human into this world, God tells us that one day, through Jesus, he will bring complete, perfect justice to all the earth. This isn't going to come up on the screen, but we see that Matthew actually quotes this passage, Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 12. And the scenario that's taking place there is that the scribes and Pharisees are trying to um, accused Jesus of doing wrong. And therefore, it's the Sabbath day, and they bring this man who has an infirmity, and they ask Jesus, how should we deal with him? And Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. And the scribes and the Pharisees become furious. How dare you do this work on the Sabbath? And Jesus responds by quoting Isaiah 42 one through four and the response of the scribes and Pharisees is that they then begin to plot how to kill Jesus so God promises that one day he will bring complete and perfect justice to all the earth in through the man Jesus Christ so are you beginning to see how as we take a look At Nehemiah chapter 5, Jesus is the hero of that chapter. But let's not stop there. Let's continue on a little bit further in Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's take a look at verses 14 through 18. Nehemiah 5, verse 14 Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor, this is Nehemiah talking, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver even their servants lorded it over the people but i did not do so because of the fear of god i also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were there gathered there for the work moreover there were at my table 150 men jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet, for all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people." And so we see Nehemiah here saying, understanding the situation, seeing the famine, seeing the poverty, seeing the commitment of the people of Jerusalem to building this wall, leaving their fields, leaving their vineyards, leaving their houses, coming to help build this wall. And Nehemiah says, even though I had the very right to accept from the people this money, this food allowance, money to purchase that food he says i did not burden them i did not take this food allowance for the governor because i didn't want to lay a heavy burden on these people i did that because i feared god what a contrast between nehemiah and the nobles and officials as we saw earlier but you see within this as we continue the theme of nehemiah being a picture and a sign pointing forward to Jesus. As Nehemiah says, I didn't want to bring a burden on my people. I feared God and I loved the people. I was committed to the work of God and the rebuilding of the wall. That points us forward to Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we see Jesus saying a very similar thing. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, reads as such. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So Jesus Christ, as he is dealing with this great injustice that's taken place from amongst God's people, says, like Nehemiah, I'm not going to lay a heavy burden on you. In fact, I'm going to give you rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, because my yoke is light. So we see, once again, Nehemiah as a picture and as a sign pointing forward to Jesus and the great work that Jesus has done here. And the rest that he's talking about is not just like, oh, I get to sit back in this chair and and take some rest. It's a rest for their souls. He does that by going to the cross. He does that by being crucified on the cross, being buried, and raised to life again three days later. That's how he gives this rest. But we're not done with Nehemiah chapter 5 yet. We have one last verse to look at, so let's take a look at that. Back in Nehemiah chapter 5 again. And the very last verse there is verse 19. And we see Nehemiah here saying, remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah is saying, remember, God, the great work I've done for this people. Remember how I brought justice to the people when this great injustice was taking place. Remember, God, how I set things right and the nobles and officials restored what they had taken Remember, God, the work that I'm leading the people to do in building the wall. Remember me, God, for not putting a great burden on this people by not taking from the food allowance that I deserve. Now, let's take a look at Jesus Christ and how he says something very similar. and We find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Verses 4 and 5. John 17, chapter 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished... This is Jesus talking to the Father. Jesus in prayer with his Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Sounds similar to what Nehemiah was saying? And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we see Jesus before the Father praying, remember the work that I did, the work that you gave me, that work of redemption that cost me, in this case, that will cost him his very life remember father I have finished that work that you gave me to do and now remember father and bring me back to that glory that I experienced and that I had with you in heaven before you sent me to earth and so once again we see Nehemiah as a picture and as a sign pointing forward to Jesus and my hope is that as we've gone through Nehemiah chapter five, we've seen Jesus as the actual hero of that chapter. Because this is all pointing forward to him and that greater work that he does. He is the greater Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah is just as a shadow of the the reality and the substance of Jesus Christ. And all this talked about in the life of Nehemiah and his ministry is pointing forward to that greater work that Jesus Christ would do. So Jesus Christ is the hero of Nehemiah chapter five. So what more can I say? Jesus is the hero. Let's go to our father in prayer. Father God, we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Nehemiah and the work that he did, the work that you did through him in bringing justice to your people there in Jerusalem. We thank you even more so for the work of Jesus Christ, how you brought justice to the earth in and through the person of Jesus Christ and how you have promised that one day you will bring complete and perfect justice to this earth once again through the person of Jesus Christ so father we thank you for Jesus we thank you for that great work that he accomplished for us we thank you that your justice was served upon him the justice that we deserved The death that he died in our place. The pain that he bore in our place. Father, thank you for Jesus. May he continue to be the hero. This we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.